Even men like Talon Card occasionally make mistakes. This is the Chimera. Launch the attack. Time to go to work. You won't let me get killed, will you? Is that what I was supposed to be doing here? I should have brought my lightsaber. Welcome to a very special interview episode of Star Wars Bookworms. I'm your host, Teresa Delgado, and with me is my co-host, Aaron Goins. Hey, Aaron. Hey, Teresa. So we are very fortunate to have on the show with us today. Um, he was one of the executive producers on Star Wars Rebels. He has his own um, series of books as well, and he is working on the brand newly announced Marvel Kanan comics, and that's Greg Wiseman. Hey, Greg, how are you? I'm good. How are you guys? Doing well on a Thursday. So I guess where we should probably get started is always where everyone gets started with how you got into Star Wars. So can you tell us a little bit about your personal um, connection to Star Wars? Sure. Uh, you know, it, it was I was 13 years old, which was a long, long time ago. <laughs> And uh, the first movie came out, and I, I don't. I what I don't remember is how I heard about it. I don't remember that. What I clearly remember is making my mom take me, um, you know. And we went to Westwood Village. I'm from uh, Los Angeles, and, we, and I'm actually from the San Fernando Valley. But we went uh, all the way to Westwood because that's where it was showing, and uh, stood in line, and the line was long. And I don't think I even realized um, what a phenomenon at all that it was going to be. But we went and saw the movie, um, you know, the first weekend it was out, uh, what we now call episode four, but at the time we just called Star Wars. Um, and, you know, was just blown away by it. You know, thought it was amazing and loved it. Um, loved episode five even more. Um, and those are, those two are still my two favorites. Um, and, uh, so I've been a Star Wars fan for, um, almost 40 years. So you said the first two are your favorite. Um, I know personally me and Teresa, we actually both enjoy Return of the Jedi of the three original trilogy movies. Um, out of those first two of A New Hope and Empire Strikes Back, which one, which one is your personal favorite? probably empire um but it's close you know star wars is amazing uh new hope is amazing because it introduces this whole world and and of course it's all pretty incredible but for me um everything deepens enriches widens uh, everything about empire um takes that world which was cool in new hope and makes it real for me in uh an empire. Um, so those two for me are, are the foundation both tonally. Um, and when we were working on rebels, you know, that was the tone that we all wanted to go for as the tone of episodes four and five. Um, and the feel of that, um, you know, is permeates our thinking and, and our work on rebels, uh, of those two movies. Cause we just, that, that was what, we just really wanted to go for there. And so, you know, that's right. Yeah. You know, that's my sensibility, the combination of humor with action and drama and tragedy 
I like, you know, in all the things I've done, um, that's what I like is juxtaposing all those different elements um, because that to me is what makes great television or great films or great books or whatever. Um, and so, you know, those two movies are phenomenal for me. So, and I've heard you say before that, you know, right around that same time frame when you saw Star Wars, that was around the time that you started getting into writing, correct? Well, no. I mean, I started writing in second grade, so I'd been writing. I mean, you know, it's all relative, but, you know, it's the difference between being 13 and in seventh grade and eighth grade. And I actually started writing when I was five years earlier, when I was in second grade. Um, and I'd been, I mean, I started my first novel in sixth grade. I never finished it, but I started it in sixth grade. It was an incredibly dramatic story about the annual uh, sixth grade faculty uh, softball game. Um, <laughs> and I was very passionate about that story, at least for about four months. Uh, <laughs> But that, you know, I, I wanted to be a writer almost my entire life, certainly from second grade on. I, being a writer, that's what I wanted to be. So I started writing years before Star Wars. Um, but so I can't really give George credit for that. But, <laughs> well, <laughs> but you know, the way he told that, the way he told those stories and the people he worked with told those stories, um, you know, obviously had an influence on me. Uh, yeah. But no, they didn't launch me on a writing career or anything. Well, no, that was going to be a question was, you know, did Star Wars have an impact on you moving forward with your writing? And, you know, obviously it did. <laughs> but because um, you just answered that. But that was my question. I just was kind of curious how it had an impact on your writing moving forward. A lot of it is tonal. Um, what, what we just discussed, you know, it, it's the juxtaposition of elements that, you know, often are treated as mutually exclusive. Like if you're writing a tragedy, everything has to be sad from the beginning to the end and serious. And if you're writing a comedy, it's all got to be funny. There can't be any serious content in there. And to me, that's nonsense, uh, literally. I mean, it, you know, tragedy is more tragic if it's offset by comedy. Comedy is funnier if it's offset by tragedy. Um, you know, uh, I fundamentally believe, and, and I think it's been proven over and over again with, with TV shows like Buffy the Vampire Slayer and, um, and, and anything, frankly, by Joss Whedon, um, but lots of other people as well, is that these things work better when, when all that's working in concert, when you can shift in a moment's time from a joke to something that breaks your heart. Um, and that's something that Star Wars did from the moment that show came on, you know, the moment the movie starts, you, you're juxtaposing comedy with those two droids, you know, doing their Laurel and Hardy thing uh, on that ship while meanwhile people are dying all around them. Um, and so, you know, Star Wars was great for that. And that was, if not the first, certainly one of the first times that with clarity I saw that you could accommodate those things, those, those combinations in essence. You've done a lot of work in comics and animation. 
Um, what was kind of your, your gateway into starting to write these things professionally? Like how, how did that come about? Uh, well, I was a uh, sophomore in college um, and Marvel Comics announced a search for new talent um, in all their books. Um, and the thought crossed my mind that they would get literally thousands of submissions. Um, and I thought, I'll get lost in that pile. But I thought, you know, if Marvel's looking for new talent, the odds are DC will look for new talent as well shortly. Um, at least in those days, if Marvel jumped, DC five minutes later would also jump. Um, I, I don't think they're, it's quite like that, the dynamics like that now, but back then it was um, to a large extent. And so instead of prepping materials for Marvel, I prepped materials for DC Comics. Um, and sure enough, I wasn't wrong. About a month after Marvel announced their new talent search, DC announced one of their own. And I had my stuff already done, so I sent it in. Later, when I worked at DC Comics, uh, I found the logbook um, where they logged in all the submissions from people. I was literally the second name in that book. Um, and what happened then um, is that they logged in my submission and then they lost it. Um, I later found it, again, years later, found it when I was working on staff at DC um, at the bottom of some file cabinet. Um, but they lost it. And they had two packets that they would send out to people. One was for writers and one was for artists. And um, I guess 70% of the submissions they received were art submissions. So they took, instead of writing me and saying, hey, we're really sorry, we can't find your submission, could you resend it? They just took, they just gambled that I was an artist and they sent me this art submission. And I was outraged by this in a way that only a 19-year-old can be outraged. Um, and uh, so I sent this letter. You know, I tried to keep it very professional, but I, I wrote things like, look, I'm a professional writer, which was a lie. Um, and, <laughs> you know, I kept copies of all my materials, which at least was true. And if you had needed, you know, them, you could have told me and I would have happily resent them. But this just seems unprofessional to me. And I sent this letter off mostly just to... Because now I just thought, you know, this was all kind of bullshit and, and I didn't think anything would come of it. Um, but then uh, a few days later, you know, I was living in a dorm and um, my roommate, you know, the phone rings. And back then, you know, we didn't have cell phones. We, we had landlines and only landlines. And so the phone rings. My roommate answers it and he goes, it's some guy named Dick Giordano from DC Comics. And Dick Giordano was the vice president, executive editor of the company. So I thought that this was one of my geek friends pulling something. It never occurred to me that Dick Giordano would actually call me, but it was Dick. And um, as ridiculous as this sounds, he was impressed. Still hadn't seen my submissions, but he was impressed by my letter. Wow. <laughs> and, um, and so he says, look, you know, we should talk. Are you going to be in New York anytime soon? And I was like, well, as a matter of fact, I'm going to be there over spring break, which was in March. And 
And um, he said, well, great. And we set up a time for me to come in. And um, and then, of course, once I hung up the phone, of course, I had no plans to go to New York. Um, so I had to quickly figure out a way both to go to New York and to pay for it. Um, my dad was kind enough to give me some of his frequent flyer miles um, so that I could fly out from California to New York. And I did have a cousin who lived in Manhattan. And, and so she let me sleep on her couch for a few days so that I could go meet with Dick. And the day of the meeting, it was torrentially raining. And I got dressed up in a suit because, from my point of view, this was a job interview, and I thought that's what you wore. Of course, you know, I haven't probably worn a suit since. But, um, uh, you know, and it's pouring rain, and my cousin was like, well, let me show you how you're going to get there on the subway. And I'm like, no, no, I can't. I'm afraid I'll get lost, so I'm just going to take a cab. And she's like, you're going to hail a cab in the rain in New York. I'm like, yeah, I think that's a better plan than she and all she says to me is like, yeah, good luck with that. And she leaves. Um, so I go out and it's like something out of a bad movie. You know, I, I immediately step into a pothole that's full of water. So I've now got one foot that's completely drenched. I have an umbrella, but the wind is so intense that it, you know, folds the umbrella, you know, inside out. So within seconds, I am drenched. Um, I finally, you know, it takes forever to get a cab because it's New York City in the rain. Of course, now the notion that I thought that was going to be possible at all, I, what I find amazing is that I eventually managed to get one. Um, not that it took me a half hour, um, but that I got one at all. Um, and so I, by the time I got to DC Comics, which at the time was at 666 Fifth Avenue, which I think is an appropriate address, but um, uh, I was like a wet rat. <laughs> no. But, Somehow or other, Dick and I hit it off. I did a little bit of freelance work for them for a couple of years, and then I uh, wound up going on staff there, first as uh, editorial assistant, which is a nice title for Xerox boy. Um, and then I worked my way up to associate editor, and I began freelancing a comic called Captain Adam for them. And then I moved back to Los Angeles to go to graduate school at USC, and uh, eventually got a job at Walt Disney Television Animation, which led to me producing Gargoyles and everything else I've done since, pretty much. Wow. That's a very intense story. I don't know if a lot of people <laughs> have stories like that. <laughs> now what's great about it is that it is a great story. You know, back then I'm not sure I had so much fun living it, but it's. But now I'm glad because I have a great story to tell. I think that's how it is with a lot of things that happen to us in life. Yeah. Um, so can you talk to us a little bit about your process of writing and if the process is the same, you know, whether it's for TV, a, a book or comics? Um, yeah, it's basically the same process for me. It's very primitive. It's about a bulletin board, a lot of index cards and a lot of push pins and a couple of Sharpies. Um, I basically write up every notion onto an index card, you know, you, you know, any idea for character goes on a card. Idea for dialogue goes on a card. You know, scene goes on a card. And, um, and then I use these cards to build. Now, it depends, you know, what the project is. You know, if it's a TV series, then I'm building episodes. So, um, uh, you know, you have a line across the top of the bulletin board for episode one and then another 
row right below it for episode two, et cetera. And um, I always like to take an entire season at a time. Um, so you've got the cards, so you can move them around. So, you know, if you're like, oh, well, let's introduce this character here. And then you're like, no, no, let's change your mind. You decide, let's save this character. We'll give him a big introduction in episode three instead of sort of slide by him in episode one because there's not time. So you can move things around. Um, I'm sure there are ways to do this on a computer, but I am virtually a Luddite um, and don't know how. Um, and I also like just the tangibleness of the cards um, and being able to move them around. And then uh, usually I'm doing that, particularly on a television series, um, with some collaborators. Um, so, for example, on Rebels, it was uh, Simon Kinberg, Dave Filoni, um, and uh, the Lucasfilm team, Pablo Hidalgo, Kiri Hart, Rain Roberts, um, were all there. Um, and uh, on other shows, you know, it's, uh, you know, on uh, Young Justice, it was my partner, Brandon Vietti, and, and our uh, staff writer, Kevin Hopps. So every show is slightly different, but the basic process stays the same. Now, if I'm doing a comic book, then it's more just me. And, um, you know, first I'll break it down by, you know, issues for an arc, you know, so on Young Justice, on the Young Justice comic book, um, the last arc was six issues long. It was Young Justice Invasion. It was sort of introducing our cast from season two into the comic. And so first I break it down like this is what happens um, across the six issue arc per issue. And then I'll get more specific um, once I start on each individual issue, once I've sort of nailed down the framework for the whole thing, then I'll do the same process again with more specificity um, for an individual TV episode or for an individual uh, comic book issue. When I wrote my novel, uh, my second novel, Spirits of Ash and Foam, I basically did the same process, but for the whole book, wound up with 693 index cards wow. to tell the story. And so I had this giant bulletin board full of index cards and then there was a table that I covered with index cards and then a pool table that I covered with index <laughs> cards. Um, and they just barely fit on those three things. Um, and then once that's done, I collect all the cards up in order. I write up a, a document that just, you know, in essence becomes the outline for it. And then I use that as a uh, primer for writing. And, and the idea for me is that I like to get all the hard work out of the way, the structure, all that kind of stuff out of the way, knowing what it's going to be so that the writing itself is pretty easy and free flowing. And, and I don't have to um, work out problems so much as just make sure that it feels right and sounds good and the dialogue is working and that kind of thing. Um, so I try to always front load the work um, as much as possible. So likewise, when we're doing television episodes, um, you know, we get the premise approved in, in groups. So, you know, 13 episodes at a time, or at least four or five episodes in it at a time. Um, and then I make sure that the outline is fairly detailed so that, uh, again, when we go to writing the script, it's just about the flow and the dialogue and that kind of thing. It's not about figuring out how the story is going to work. You want to get all that hard stuff out of the way early.
And that's my basic process. It's interesting that you talk about using the index card process because I did the same thing um, all through college. I did a lot of historical research papers and things for historical journals. And um, that was my process, too. I just put all the cards out all over the floor and numbered them individually and then would put them all together in order to write my paper. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's the only method that works. I'm sure other people do other things and have great success with it. And I've tried other things, you know, all the way down to winging it. Like, you know, there was a couple issues of a comic book I did once where I'm like, okay, this time I'm, you know, I know the basic story I want to tell, but I'm going to on purpose not plan it out and see how it flows otherwise. And it was just a mess. (laughs) So for me, you know, I need to get all that uh, thinking out first. Um, uh, and so I swear by that method. Well, I know Teresa and I have both been watching season one of Star Wars Rebels, and we're both loving it so far. And I know you were an executive producer on season one of Star Wars Rebels. How did you get involved in, you know, being a part of new Star Wars animation? Well, um, job interviews. Um, you know, I uh, met with uh, Kiri Hart and... Uh, Rain Roberts and Carrie Beck, um, and, of, uh, and I, I think Dave was Dave Filoni was in that first meeting. I'm, I'm not hundred percent sure. Um, and we just talked, talked about what we loved about star Wars, you know, talked about the other stuff I'd done. They had read, uh, the pilot I'd written to spectacular Spider-Man and liked that. Um, and, uh, that led to a second, job interview this time that including Dave and um, Simon Kinberg um, which led to a third job interview this time with some uh, Disney execs um, which led to a fourth lunch I I think there were five meetings before I finally uh, was told you got the job and you know it was it's like a dream come true you know getting to work on Star Wars so it was terrific and Dave is great and Simon is great and uh you know uh it it was a lot of fun so um what was your specific role coming on because i've heard you say that the story was sort of already built and like the characters were kind of already you know even like maybe like somewhat developed i think the story was built but the characters they have the show Uh, i'm not one of the creators of the show simon and dave and i think carrie back are listed as the creators and by the time i came aboard they had the, all six leads um, and the Inquisitor uh, and the basic setup on Lothal. So they had the setting. They had the, the era figured out. They had the lead characters and the lead villain all figured out. Um, so my job, as I saw it, was to come in and help them build, A, build their stories, but B, help them build their world. So, um, you know, to flesh some of this stuff out. So, for example, when I came aboard, Sabine, Hera, Zeb, Kanan, Ezra, they were all named already, but they only each had first names. So I'm like, well, you know, that's not Star Wars. Star Wars has first and last names. It's not Luke. It's Luke Skywalker. You know, so what's Ezra's last name? What's Zeb's last name? So, you know, we worked on that. Um, I uh, came up with uh, uh, Zeb's name, Garazeb Aurelios, just from the one word Zeb. Um, so it was little details like that, but it was also, 
some big picture stuff, we began to talk about, well, what is this series? You know, um, we developed a three-act structure for the entire series. No matter how many seasons it winds up going, there's still a, a structure to the series as a whole. Um, and we then sat down uh, and I put up a big giant bulletin board with a lot of index cards and we started breaking that first season, um, episode by episode. Um, first the group of us and then later we brought in the writers who worked with us to, to flesh out each individual episode. Um, but that's what I saw. You know, a lot of the supporting characters um, didn't exist when I started. So Agent Callus is something that, uh, I, I'm not saying I created Agent Callus, but I'm saying I was there when that character was created. Um, you know, Zer Leonis, uh, uh, Commandant Oresco, Taskmaster Grint, um, a lot of these sort of secondary characters, Takatra Vizago, um, were all characters that we sort of worked up together and figured out who they are and who populates Lothal in this world that we're going to be exploring, this corner of the galaxy far, far away. And we began to talk about backstories for all the characters. You know, what's Ezra's history? What's Kanan's history? What's Hera's history? Sabine, Zeb, etc., and work those out, you know, and I'm sure, you know, little bits and pieces have already been sort of revealed, like the, you know, the fall of Lassan for Zeb, and, um, and little bits and pieces will continue to be revealed during this season, and I'm sure in subsequent seasons, um, but uh, that was fun, you know, part of it is about moving forward and say, okay, now that these, that Ezra's joined this team, what happens? But part of it also was about looking backwards and sort of making sure that we had a full understanding of each of these characters so that we could write them effectively, so that we knew where they were coming from, even if we weren't going to tell the audience quite yet what that backstory was. We needed to know it. In order to write it effectively, we need to know it so that we could tell the actors so that, you know, it would inform how they perform. Um, and then, you know, I was there for the casting process, which was, uh, you know, we just got this phenomenal cast both of regulars and supporting and guest performers. And, um, so, you know, it, it was, it, it was a lot of fun. So I have to ask you about one kind of supporting character because he's my favorite and we only saw him in the premiere movie, but how did Kitwar come about? The baby looking. Uh, they they had a Simon already had the idea for the pilot, and the idea that it would sort of end with uh, um, the rescue of the Wookies. Um, and uh, when I got there, I started talking about, okay, that's great. We've got the Wookies. We're going to have a whole bunch of Wookies, as many as from an animation standpoint as we can manage. But I said, you know, we want to get to know at least a couple of them. You know, and so in discussion with uh, Dave and Simon, we began to narrow down and focus on this one father-son relationship because we thought that would have a nice sort of parallel with what we were just barely starting to build with Canaan and Ezra. And so we came up with, uh, I think his, the dad's name is Wolf Waro, um, and the kid is Kitwar. And... There was a lot of discussion about what, about the names, <laughs> um, and I think uh, Dave and Pablo came up with those names. Um, but 
you know, we just figured that that father-son relationship would be a strong one. And I'm trying to think. I, I feel like that's something we came up with after I got there, but I could be wrong. It could very well be that Simon already had that idea um, in his head and brought it to the table. Um, and I just can't remember. You know, now it's like uh, uh, over a year ago. Right. So I'm not sure of all the specifics, but but that was just uh, um, part and parcel of trying again to pers- not just say, okay, we got a bunch of Wookiees, but say, who are these characters as individuals? Well, and why are we going to care about them beyond us knowing that Wookiees are cool because we've seen the movies? Right. You know, what what is it about just watching this episode that's going to make you want to care about these characters? even if this is literally your first exposure to Star Wars and you've never seen a Wookiee before in your life and somehow that's possible. <laughs> right. Well, I love him and I'm like, have my fingers and legs and toes crossed that he'll show up again one day. Maybe like a little taller. <laughs> but he was, he was awesome. Well, for, for comic book readers, we got a really exciting announcement at New York Comic Con about the new Marvel comic series that's going to be about Kanan um, and that you're actually going to be writing that series. So is there anything... I'm writing the first first arc, the first five issues, yeah. Okay. So is there anything, you know, this early on in the process that you can tell us about the comic? Uh, A little bit, not a lot. I'm not big on spoilers, but, you know, I'm happy to say what's already been announced, which is that, um, you know... uh, this is set, these, these first five issues are set at the very end of the Clone Wars. And so it's um, uh, it's a little bit before the end of the Clone Wars is when it starts and it ends a little bit after. We're talking about a period of, uh, I had to guess, about 10 months. I haven't actually written the scripts yet, so I may get a little more focused when I get closer. But uh, um, we're talking about, a, you know, just a little under a year in the life of, you know, 14-year-old Kanan. In fact, it wasn't even called Kanan yet. Um, so, uh, and it's obviously a very crucial and dark time in his life because this is Order 66. Um, and it's a story of how he survived Order 66, basically. So, um, with the novel A New Dawn that has come out and we kind of know where that falls in the timeline. Cause it's right before the show premieres. Um, could you see this? Well, comic- it's a wave before because it's, it's the first meeting of, uh, Kanan and Hera, but, uh, it's before either of them had, um, before Zab or Sabina joined the team. So, um, it, it's a, it's a, it's a, at least a year or two earlier than the premiere of Life and Spark of Rebellion, because that, those five, Chopper, uh, Hera, Kanan, Sabine, and Zab have clearly been a team for at least some period of time before Ezra joins. The five of them are all pretty. It's not like Sabine is still being treated by the new kid and then a newer kid shows up. Sabine's already integral to the team by the time Ezra gets there. And uh, New Dawn is predates either Sabine or Zeb joining the crew of the Ghosts. So uh, it's it's a little ways back. It's not just before. 
could this comic series possibly lead us with Kanan, you know, towards a new dawn? Yeah. I mean, again, I'm not pretending to cover, you know, in, in my piece of it, he's, uh, about 14 years old and, 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 you know, maybe by the end he's 15, maybe. Um, but, uh, so that obviously doesn't take us all the way to, uh, new dawn, but you know, the book is going on after the first five issues and what they do with it from that point. Um, you know, I, I mean, I know a little bit about what they're planning. I, I don't want to spoil any of it, but, um, you know, ultimately, yeah, I think if the book goes on long enough, it'll take you a whole distance, um, between, uh, Kanan's, you know, past as a Padawan to New Dawn and potentially beyond that to right up to the start of Spark of Rebellion. I don't know. Um, it's a little too soon to know, but uh, that's the idea is to cover Kanan's life in those early years before uh, he met Ezra. And it's starting again at this sort of crucial uh, pivotal moment in his life when Order 66 comes down. So what kind of, like, books and comics do you like to read personally just for your own entertainment? Uh, I watch a ton of television, all kinds of different television. Um, in terms of reading, uh, when I have time to read, which is often on vacations and trips and stuff, I tend to be uh, reading uh, detective novels, mystery novels. That's sort of my um, go-to for reading pleasure Um so I like Michael Connolly. I love Ross McDonald, um, Raymond Chandler, Dashiell Hammett. Um, I like Walter Mosley, um, Harry Kemmelman. There's a, a bunch of mystery novelists that I like. I just reread, which I've read a long time ago, but reread the 10 Martin Beck mysteries by uh, Madge Sowall and Per Walu. And these are these 10 mysteries set in the 70s and in uh, Sweden, um, translated into English, and they're phenomenal. So I, I tend to read that. When I'm in the car, I listen to audiobooks often. I listen to music sometimes, but um, and NPR occasionally, but mostly I like listening to sort of uh, classics, you know, like Charles Dickens. I've, I've really been on a kick alternating Charles Dickens and Jane Austen back and forth um, recently. Um, and uh, I find that my commute goes a lot faster when I'm engaged in a book. So um, that's been a lot of fun. No, I love audiobooks too. My audiobook um, rotation typically is Harry Potter all the way through the series and then loop it back around and start again. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've heard all the Harry Potter audiobooks too. My kid, when my kids were younger and we'd take car trips, that was. You know, my wife and son and daughter and I, we'd listen to those uh, Harry Potter books on tape and we'd heard them all. Um, but, yeah, I, uh, and I read all those books aloud to my kids even before we had the audio books. Um, and that was great. I mean, love the Harry Potter series, but no, I'm not constantly re-listening to the audio. I've still got them all, but I'm mostly, you know... Um, Mostly Dickens. It's these days. I don't know why I'm on this big Dickens kick. And uh, I mean, a, I, the main reason why is because it's great. But um, 
you know, there, I've read a bunch of Charles Dickens books, but there, but he wrote so much. There's a ton of stuff by him that I've never read. So I just decided to go, you know, to his bibliography and start at the beginning and work my way through it. No, that's a great way. I do love Dickens. Um, my mom had this thing when I was growing up that if I wanted to get like a fun book or like a YA book or something, I had to get a classic first and I had to read the classic before I could read the other. So. Good system, I guess. <laughs> oh, I mean, it, it made me read a lot of things that I probably wouldn't have read if I didn't have that system in place. So I'm actually very, very thankful. Um because I'd read a lot of the stuff I needed to read in school already. <laughs> so I'm like, read it. Um, so we know you have your own novels. So can you tell us a little bit about Reign of Ghosts and Spirits of Ash and Foam? Sure. Um, they're the first two books in what I hope to be a nine-book series. Um, Reign of the Ghosts uh, is the first book. It's Reign, R-A-I-N. Um, and it's about a 13-year-old girl, Reign Kasik. Um, who lives on a chain of Caribbean islands called the Ghost Keys, uh, or the Ghosts for short. And uh, her parents work in the tourist service industry. Her mom runs a bed and breakfast. Her dad runs a charter boat service. And already at age 13, she spends a lot of her time making beds for tourists and serving them breakfast and cutting bait and things like that. Um, and she feels trapped. You know, she's only 13 years old, but she's looking ahead at her life and feeling like she'll graduate high school and keep working for tourists. And that that's that these eight islands are going to be uh, her whole life. And it's feeling like her world is very, very small. And then she receives from her grandfather this family heirloom, which turns out to be this 400-year-old talisman, this armband, that allows her, uh, when she wears it, to see and communicate with ghosts with the dead um, and she finds out that she's got a destiny that she's got a mission um, and suddenly this world that was seeming and that you know there's this whole other supernatural world that out there so suddenly this world that seeming very very small suddenly is looming very very large um, and so she and her best friend Charlie um, and other characters sort of dive into this uh, quest that she's on and um, it, it to me it's great I mean what I, I love mythology and I love Greek mythology and Norse mythology but you know I just feel felt like uh, we've seen it you know Greek mythology is all through pop culture um, even Norse mythology is all through pop culture um, but I was a I began researching the Caribbean which is the setting for these books which I found interesting and just the idea of someone so messed in the, in the tourist industry, I thought was an interesting sort of real world side to it. And the native mythology is of that area is mythology of the Taino people who were the pre-Columbian native Americans uh, there before, you know, the Europeans arrived. And they have these wonderful stories. Their mythology is easily as rich as Greek mythology is, or Norse mythology, or Egyptian mythology. And yet, from a pop culture standpoint, no one's heard any of these stories. So I was able to sort of 
take these stories and put them in a modern context. And it was this whole wealth of material that to me was very, very fresh. Um, so, for example, the second book in the series, Spirits of Ash and Foam, and both of them are out and available on Amazon, or you can go to any bookstore, and if they're not literally on the shelf, you can go to the front desk and they'll order them for you. Um, and Spirits of Ash and Foam has the Taino version of the mermaid legend in there and of the vampire, you know, so it's like it, it's a kind of vampire you've never seen before. With all the vampire stories that are out there now, this one is both brand new and, of course, you know, old because it, it comes right out of the mythology of, of Mucoamerica. Um, and yet it's a mythology that most of your listeners will never have heard before. Um, so to me, that gave me some really interesting ways to go with these books that seemed fresh and I had a, just a blast writing them. Um, uh, you know, and I was writing Spirits of Ash and Foam at the same time as I was writing and editing and producing on Rebels. So that was fun too, because I got to sort of go back and forth between the two projects. You know, if I got um, bogged down on Rebels, I could take a break and do some work on Spirits. And if I got bogged down on Spirits, I could take a break and go do work on Rebels, and um, so, you know, it was actually nice to have both projects to sort of throw against each other. On the one, Rebels, I'm collaborating with all these great people, and and that's wonderful. Um, but every once in a while, you know, they want you to go a direction that may not be your first choice, um, and so you get a little frustrated, and then you get on the book, and, you know, it's just me, so I have to do it. But it's got the flip problem, which is that working on the book, I have no collaborators, so it's all on me. <laughs> so there's no one I can sort of say, well, the artist will make that work, or the actor will make that work. I had to, you know, I've got to sort of make sure I'm doing all that job myself. Um, but again, it was great to sort of be able to juxtapose those two projects and enjoy um, both. Well, so you said that this is, you're hoping for it to be a nine book series. I think Spirits of Ash and Foam just came out um, not too long ago, right? It was summer? July. July. This past July. Well, I hope you get the okay to go ahead with the third one. I know I'm going to go and pick these up because I really want to read them just from hearing, you know, what they, sort of what they're about is kind of the area that I like to read stuff. So we'll put some links up for you too and things like that so people can find them. Um, Great. So do you think you'd ever be interested in, you know, writing a Star Wars novel if they asked? Uh, absolutely. In a heartbeat, you know. Um, I'd love to. Um, particularly, you know, something along the lines of New Dawn, you know, that is something that dealt with the backstory of, of the crew of the ghost. Um uh, or, but frankly, you know, if they offered me something like that, no matter what it was, I'm not likely to turn it down. I think it'd be a lot of fun. Um, I really enjoy the prose writing process. Um, and, uh, and I love these characters and I love this, you know, this, uh, world. Um, so it would be a great boon to be offered that. So you're actually a co-creator of one of my favorite cartoons growing up, and that would be Gargoyles. 
Um, just loved that cartoon. It was right. I was right at the right age when that came out. Um, what was it like, kind of working in Disney Animation? And what is it? What was the experience? Was it a similar experience working kind of in Star Wars um, or working in uh, Lucasfilm Animation? No, it was you know it was very different. Um, it was a different era. You know, it was you know we started working on Gargoyles in 1991, and um, you know, a Gargoyles was a completely original property. Um, so the experience of developing it from scratch, as opposed to sort of finding what we were going to do within the Star Wars galaxy, is is different. I mean, you still have to build the same kind of thing. So yeah, uh, building something from scratch is a different experience and adapting like on Young Justice or Special Hour Spider-Man, I'm adapting comics and even on Star Wars, we were creating something new, but still it was new within the context of this greater Star Wars universe and timeline that already existed. Um, and, you know, the atmosphere at Disney was different then, you know, we were um, part of this big conglomerate, but you know, we were off doing TV animation and there wasn't a lot of people paying attention to us, to be honest. Uh, it would be a lot harder to do Gargoyles today in that way than it was back then um, because uh, I had been a Disney executive. I had developed Gargoyles as an executive and then moved over to produce the show. Um, and because I had been an executive, I sort of often compare it to... Uh, you know, in an insane asylum, they have trustees. They're still patients, but they're relatively okay. So they give them batons to help keep the other patients in line. And so that was kind of me. I was kind of like the lunatic most trusted um, <laughs> in those days. So I was given a lot of freedom. And Frank Parr and I, who was my partner on the show, were given a lot of freedom. And we were able to create this something that I think was truly sort of special and unique. And I think the proof of that is that, you know, it's been literally 20 years since that show premiered and still we've got a pretty uh, loyal fan base um, out there who loves the show. And the DVDs just came out. Uh, that is the second volume of season two came out. And so now the whole show is available on DVD. And a few years ago, we did some. I wrote some Gargoyles comics, and those all all sold out. Um, and we're hopeful that we'll be able to start that up again too. So, you know, it was it was probably um, the best professional experience of my life was Gargoyles. No, that's really great. It's really great to hear. Um, I watched it some, but I think I was I was definitely younger. Um, when it was out, so I've been playing catch up, trying to find places to watch it. Um, just because I know I have so many friends that really love that show, but um, and we know that um, you also did, you know, quite a bit of work on Young Justice. What was that experience like? Uh, Young Justice was another great experience. I was working with a, a different partner on that show, Brandon Vietti, and Brandon and I uh, developed. Uh, Young Justice, it was focused on um, the younger heroes of the DC Universe, the ones who were sort of being mentored by the Justice League. Um, and it was a show that was sort of a spy show, more even than a superhero show. Um, and 
the way we used to talk about it is that it was a spy show first. Second, it was a show about teenagers coming of age. And third, it was a superhero show. And um, again, that's a show that we got two seasons of and wish we had gotten more, but developed a very, very loyal and vocal uh, fan following, which is very gratifying. Um, and we're really proud of the work we did on on uh, YJ. One last thing. We've noticed that your interaction with the fans on Twitter has been pretty awesome. Um, and you've interacted with both of us, I believe, you know, before we set up this interview and everything. So um, from the fan community, we want to thank you for that because that's really cool. Um, when you're interacting with fans and stuff, do you just try to mostly answer their questions and things like that? I know you have a website that people can go to and submit uh, questions. Yeah. Uh, the problem with Twitter, of course, is that 140 character max and, and there's a tendency, not often, but occasionally, um, for people to ask a question that I'm like, there's, there's no way I can answer this on Twitter. Um, and that's when, you know, I refer them to my website, which is askgregweissman.com. Um, and I've been doing Ask Greg for 18 years, something like that. Um, you know, it started out me answering questions about gargoyles, and I still do. But, you know, I also answer questions about uh, Young Justice and even um, I'm a few months behind. So, um I'm starting to get Star Wars Rebels questions that where the questions are from people who haven't yet seen the show because the questions are from May, you know. Um, and, you know, I have a few rules. I don't spoil. I, I don't give out spoilers. So I get a lot of questions that are basically one way or another just sort of asking for spoilers either about the shows that have ended like Gargoyles or Young Justice or about the shows that are coming like Star Wars Rebels. And I won't give spoilers on any of it. So those people tend to be disappointed <laughs> by my responses. Um, but what's great about Twitter is it does allow me to interact on a, a more or less daily basis with fans if they want to. And again, I won't give out spoilers um, and any question that requires some kind of detailed answer at all, I refer to ask. You know, I asked them to post it at Ask Greg, but everything else, you know, it's great to interact with the fans and I love doing it. And um, I would say, you know, easily 90% of the fans are fantastic and a lot of fun. Uh, every once in a while you run into that person, particularly online, where they've got the benefit of anonymity to hide behind and they act a little jerky. But um, that's actually pretty rare. Um I don't find that happens much. And uh, so, again, most of my interactions on Twitter uh, are pretty positive. Um, I hope the fans like it, but, you know, I'm having a good time or I wouldn't be doing it. Well, we appreciate it, I know for sure. And it always seems like, you know, it's more towards, like, the end of your day and you sort of rapid fire go through things, and I I think it's great. It's definitely the end of my day. I mean, it's not the end of my work day because I write and edit at night after my uh, wife and, and son go to bed. But um, there's this sort of window I have right after dinner before we sort of sit down together to watch a little bit of TV before they go to bed. And so I've got that sort of hour, usually around 8 p.m. Pacific or 9 p.m. Pacific, where I've got a little time. And so I go through uh, all my 
notifications at minimum. And then if I have time, I'll go through as much of my, uh, what, you know, the people I'm following uh, as I can manage. Um, when I started, I was making sure that I saw literally everything that I was following. And that just, it slowly began to take more and more time. I was like spending three or four hours a day on Twitter and I'm like, I can't do this. <laughs> um, so I had to cut back, but I do make sure that on a daily basis, I'm, you know, if, if someone, you know, puts, uh, and my Twitter address is at Greg underscore Weissman. So if someone writes to me within 24 hours, I'll get back to them. Oh, that's very cool. Um, Okay, so I think we're done, but um, is there anything else that you want to plug or any, you know, contact info you want to give out so that people can get in touch with you? I know you just gave the Twitter and I know you gave the website, but we can give it all again if you want so people can find you. Sure. I mean, again, it's uh, Twitter handle is uh, at Greg, G-R-E-G, underscore Weissman, W-E-I-S-M-A-N. My website is ask. A-S-K, Greg Weissman, G-R-E-G-W-E-I-S-M-A-N.com. Ask Greg Weissman, it's all one word. Um, so, again, I've been answering questions at Ask Greg for nearly 20 years. Um, and uh, I am a few months behind, but if you're patient and you ask a question there, I'll get to it, you know, eventually. And uh, on Twitter, I get to questions. Uh, I try to get to them within 24 hours. Um, but... Uh, it doesn't have to be about questions on Twitter because, again, Twitter isn't always the best place to answer things. Um, but it's a great way to interact with the fans. And then, yeah, the books are Reign of the Ghosts and Spirits of Ash and Foam, and uh, both, again, available at Amazon or at any bookstore. And um, Canaan miniseries, I just started, so I don't even know when that comes out, but I just started. It's very exciting. Um, I've got three other projects in the works, but unfortunately, I, it's premature to talk about any of them, so we'll have to hold off. Well, we're looking forward to it, and we hope that we can have you back on again maybe once the comics launch and maybe after your um, your arc has kind of wrapped so we can talk about the story as a whole. Um, but we're super excited about it. I know um, Kanan is Aaron's favorite character, so... <laughs> yes, definitely. Well, he's, he's pretty fun. Yeah, Rise of the Old Masters was an amazing episode. We loved it. Absolutely loved it. It was written by Henry Gilroy. It did a great job. Yeah, it was really great. Well, again, Greg, thank you so much. Thank you guys, both of you. I had a good time. Thanks, Greg. Bye. 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 So thanks, everybody, for listening. And as always, keep on reading, and may the Force be with you.